Have you joined Spyscape Plus yet? Spyscape Plus membership gives you exclusive access to Q&As with the spies and experts featured on the show and to supporter-only content such as The Razumov Files, our six-part drama series which reimagines Joseph Conrad's classic spy thriller under Western eyes for the present day. Once you've signed up, you can listen to all this and more via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Go to spyscape.com slash spyscape plus for details. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies, Russia's Laundromat. Part two, The Godfather. This story begins in a darkened concert hall in Moscow. A 20-something investigative journalist is moments away from revealing the details of a bombshell report. At its center, one of the very musicians she's paid good money to see. He's a man who claims little to his name, but in fact, he's one of President Putin's closest companions. So close, in fact, that the journalist and her colleagues will later call him Putin's secret caretaker. But for now, nobody knows the scale of his fortunes or the scope of his corruption. Nobody but our young journalist and her colleague, sitting in the dark, waiting and wondering what will happen when the truth comes out. You not always feel danger because basically you don't know. You might write about something less important than Putin and you get screwed. And you might write for the whole career about very high corruption and you will be safe. The problem is that you never know and uh, there is no indicators that you can predict. In last week's True Spies, we introduced you to Roman Borisovich, a financier who went undercover to expose Britain's complicity in laundering dirty Russian money. He posed as a health minister and told five different real estate agents that he intended to use stolen money to purchase a London flat. Roman had all sorts of worries about the outcome of that operation, that he'd be caught in the act, that the police might be called a lawsuit filed but he didn't fear for his safety. He knew he was protected in his adoptive country, even if unmasking some unflattering truths. But this week, our three-part series continues with a story about exposing corruption from within Russia itself. And for the woman at its center, safety cannot be guaranteed. My name is Alessia Shmagun. I'm a journalist from Russia, currently based in Latvia. Alessia Shmagun is working to expose the same crooked practices that Roman attempted to uncover. But for her, the stakes are different. 
in Russia it's quite dangerous. It has always been dangerous to work as journalist. And I would even say that it's not only dangerous to be investigative journalist, because even, I don't know, local scale, local journalists in many cases are beaten and killed and everything. So <laughs> it's, it's like something you always have in your mind. At least 58 journalists have been killed in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. Many more have been jailed, fined and detained. According to Reporters Without Borders, some have even been tortured. In 2021, Russia landed at number 150 out of 180 countries on the World Press Freedom Index. This year, that ranking dropped to 155. A draconian media landscape restricts what journalists can say and publish about the Russian state. Censorship has only worsened since the pandemic began. And over the past few months, as the country has waged its war against Ukraine, foreign correspondents and other independent media personnel have left the country in a mass exodus, as Putin's government has tightened its control over the media and the way reality itself is presented to the Russian people. As a result, the truth about corruption in Russia can fall on deaf ears. It's always difficult to make a point about whose lives affected by corruption because it's like there is a very long way from, I don't know, poor walker in some distant city of Russia and there's luxurious villas in France. For Russian citizens, Alessia says, Corruption is like the weather. It's so in fabric of everything. It's so involved in everything in the state. So I think people stop paying attention to it because they see it everywhere and they don't think they can change it. Alessia now works for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP. She describes her job as a process of connecting the dots making it clear that the palaces Russian government officials and their friends own within Russia and around the world were bought with funds taken from their own constituents. It's actually purchased on the money that might be spent on them, right? On the education, the medicine, etc. So people see in what terrible conditions they are living, but they cannot always make this link to all this wealth. You might recall that Putin himself has been linked to one of these homes, according to an investigation by Alexei Navalny, featured in episode 43 of True Spies. It's a home worth nearly $1 billion that Navalny says was purchased on the back of a complex corruption scheme. Many people say, like, yeah, he's a president, he... He deserves, he deserves this, you know, luxury. And sometimes it's hard to explain to them that it's actually their money that are stolen. The tools of an award-winning journalist like Alessia are honed and refined over the course of many years on the job. But many of the techniques she uses and the sources she turns to are available to anyone with the curiosity and instincts of a dogged reporter. I'm working with a wide range of open sources. Every step of your life actually leaves traces. When you got birth, you have a birth certificate. When you get married, you get marriage certificate. So there are a lot of databases, uh, mostly official, governmental, that contain all this information. So it depends on the story you are working on. You're just thinking of what kind of trace 
this information would leave or what kind of information you are looking for. And by that, you understanding like where to go. That means making records requests, trawling online databases, searching land registries and commercial registries. But it also means searching the very same websites, the very same apps that ordinary people like you and I are likely to use every day. Of course, we are using social networks as well to fish for connections. Like if you have a person who owning a big business, right, who is big contractor to state agency, let's say, you need to know what this person is, who he is, and if he has any connection to official, and you can see them in Facebook friends, right? Or they might study in the same school. So it's always a strategy that you need to create for every investigation. According to Alessia, investigative reporters source their stories three different ways. You can either get it from leak. One. So a source would come to you and show you some documents or tell a story and you will have a hitch to investigate. Or you have to follow the news. Two. And sometimes you see that something is not right. <laughs> like unknown person just got a big stake in important enterprise, for example. And you know that you need to look it up to understand who he is because he might have some, you know, high connections. But the third way of finding a story, Alessia says, is the most important way. It's also the most challenging. What we call phishing. Three. For example, you ask yourself a question, okay, who are the main contractors to this particular state agency or state company? And you go through all contractors and uh, look what companies there are. Uh, because in many cases, the main contractor would belong to a person who has close connections to state official. And you see the conflict of interest. That's an example of fishing. For a seasoned fisherwoman, casting a net beyond Russia's borders can be a powerful way of catching some big fish. For example, you can look at all owners of uh, villas in France, for example, All Russian owners, let's say, <laughs> to, to make the number smaller. So you look at the long list of people who owns property in France and you might see a very interesting name that might be a relative of official who do not have an income to afford this property. And that's precisely how some of her biggest stories have begun. This how I found... Uh, this uh, new husband of Putin's ex-wife in uh, Biarritz. I was going through the long list of owners and uh, I saw this name, Achiretny, and I thought, yeah, it sounds very, very familiar. Ochiretny, meaning Artur Ochiretny, the second husband of Ludomila Ochiretnaya, formerly Putina, a woman two decades his senior. In 2017, Alessia and her team at OCCRP discovered that Ochiretny was the owner of an estate in the south of France worth up to 7 million euros. A villa with marble floors, a swimming pool, a private park and a music pavilion. Nothing to sneeze at. But when you look at this person, you see that he has no legitimate explanation of such wealth. Ochiretny was the director of a non-profit organization 
and not someone who could easily provide the sort of lavish lifestyle that the former First Lady was used to. And his new wife's asset declarations didn't explain how he purchased the property either. It's a curious story and it's definitely a story on corruption. Alessia and her team weren't able to pinpoint exactly where the money came from. But it was certainly a case where following the scent of something fishy was a worthwhile exercise. Going fishing can be a thankless task. Sometimes you spend all day waiting for a bite, only to find yourself catching flies and the odd rubber boot. But there is no such cases in Russia. Every industry you will fish, you will find the case of conflict of interest or, you know, nepotism. It's very difficult job because you're always searching and you're always in the process of like looking and you're not sure if you spend another month will it give you a story or no. But in the same time, yeah, when you find a story, it's usually a big story comparing to other countries. Because like in Russia, stealing one million is nothing. We're always talking about billions, <laughs> unfortunately. Investigating people like Ocheretny is Alessia's bread and butter. In the murky swamp surrounding Vladimir Putin, she knows where to cast her line to find those hidden millions and billions. And every so often, information comes out that makes it possible to crack open the big stories. The ones that reveal the scale of the corruption and the tricks people use to hide it from view. We work a lot with offshores and there is no easy way to find out the beneficiary owner. That's why we use leaks so much because in some cases, open records wouldn't show you what you're looking for. But that's why these huge leaks are so important because they show you what is going on behind fences. And that brings us to the biggest leak of all time, the Panama Papers. Don't remember all the way back to 2016. Here's a refresher. It all began with a group called Mossack Fonseca, a Panama-based legal firm quietly providing services to offshore companies. This is basically a law firm that provided wide range of services for wealthy clients. They can establish an offshore company for you. They can provide you with nominee directors and shareholders. So your name would never appear on any registry openly. And they also provide different fiduciary services. An anonymous source leaked 2.6 terabytes of data to a German newspaper, disclosing more than 40 years of data on Mossack Fonseca's clients. That paper called on the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists to mobilize a team of investigators around the world to make sense of the data. It was a collaboration of hundreds of journalists around the world. We all worked together and that gave us opportunity to, to make these international stories because as we always say in OCRP, organized crime is international. So international efforts needed to expose it. And uh, that's why our work sometimes even more successful than, you know, law enforcement, because law enforcement cannot work together in international teams because a lot of bureaucracy involved and journalists can just, you know, set up a group <laughs> and start to investigate internationally. And that's a key part of investigating corruption. Because as Roman showed the British public, Dirty money is everywhere you look. And 
where you might not think to. All these kleptocrats, they like to park their money in Europe, in America. So you need to understand how corporate records works in different, different countries. And uh, that's why international cooperation is so important because I know how records in Russia work and uh, my colleague from Germany would know whom to speak in Germany or where to look in Germany records. For Alessia and her colleagues, the anonymous leak was a game changer. We found a lot of politicians, a lot of politically exposed persons from Russia because we were working mostly on Russians, of course. And uh, that provide a huge insight of how many politicians actually hiding behind offshores or secretly owning, you know, billions of dollars. I got involved in Panama Papers in, like, in September of 2015. A colleague of mine invited me to this small gathering of journalists involved in the project. And uh, we already did a very brief research in the data. So somebody came up with the name Raldugin. Sergei Raldugin. Maybe not number one on a Western list of oligarchs to watch, but certainly a known entity in Russia. Roldugan was a musician living in St. Petersburg, a respected classical cellist. Unlike many others who were referred as close friend of Putin, he really knows him from childhood, right? Because I think in Western press, it's common to call any person from Russia, especially if we're talking about like oligarchs, uh, a friend of Putin. But... It's not always the case. <laughs> not every famous person from Russia is a friend of Putin. But Roald Dugan, he was the real deal. The two were thick as thieves, so to speak. They knew each other since childhood. And Roald Dugan actually was the guy who introduced Putin to his future wife, Lyudmila. And Roald Dugan is a um, godfather of Putin's first daughter, Maria. Putin offers up a great deal about his dear friend Sergei in his biography, First Person, an astonishingly frank self-portrait by Russia's president. In it, he recalls inviting Roldugan to his dacha and dancing the night away in celebration of Maria's birth in 1985. For his part, Roldugan once said publicly that Putin was like a brother to him. And yet, while the majority of Putin's buddies were known to be men of extraordinary wealth, Roldukin was a musician on a very modest salary. Many Putin's old friends became very wealthy during his presidency, right? So Roldukin was a rare example who did not start a business since Vladimir Putin became president. Or at least not to anyone's knowledge. Roldugan was careful to make himself seem like a man of limited resources. Wealthy? Yes. Oligarch wealthy? No. In 2014, he came under scrutiny as a 4% stakeholder of Bank Rossia, a bank that has earned itself the moniker Putin's personal cash box. Rossia was set up in the early 90s with funds from the Communist Party, as the Soviet Union was collapsing. A collective of Putin's closest friends pooled their money into a shared account. When in 2014, it was revealed that Roald Dugan was a major stakeholder of the bank, the cellist was the artistic director of the House of Music, a conservatory in St. Petersburg. He told the New York Times that he invested in Rossia because, as he put it, 
there was no money for art anywhere. And he also said in plain language, I've got an apartment, a car, and a dacha. I don't have millions. But if Roldugan owned a major stake in Rossia, he likely wasn't revealing the extent of his wealth. It wasn't until April 2016, with the 11.5 million secret documents known as the Panama Papers, that the fuller picture would be made clear. Thanks to Alessia. When we started to look into real documents, we saw like a real picture of the business empire. And uh, yeah, that's when we realized it would be a huge and very interesting story. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Let's recap. Sergei Roldugan was a longtime friend of Vladimir Putin and the godfather of his firstborn child. Journalists had suspected Roldugan might have more money than he claimed, but it wasn't until the Panama Papers leak that Alessia and her colleagues were able to uncover the scope of his wealth. Basically, our story was showing how he got money and how he spent it. And uh, he got it in very, let's say, suspicious way that should have raised all red flags in any banks involved. And uh, from the documents, we also saw how he spent this money. Of course, trawling through the countless pages of documents leaked to the press would not be a one-woman job. Alessia worked with the team and broke down the task and the massive troves of hidden money down to more manageable sums. We started with very basic stuff. It was three of us who were working on the story. Six companies held assets linked to Roldugan, including a Sonnet overseas in the British Virgin Islands and international media overseas in Panama. This too belongs to Roldugan directly, but others were represented by the same people, documents were sent in the same you know, patch by the same people. So we split uh, six companies on three of us and start looking document by document, start reading it and trying to understand what it is about. I would say that every company would play a certain role. These companies were all linked to the same cohort of Swiss lawyers who in turn could all be traced back to Bank Rossia, Putin's personal cash box. The largest of those companies had a turnover of $2 billion. As the team began to peel back layer upon layer, obscuring Roldugan's wealth, they identified several specific ways that his accounts received funding. First of all, loans from big businessmen from Russia but all these businessmen were from very close circle of Putin's. And he got loans with interest rate like 1%, so very, very low. That made us think that this is not really commercial loans, but more like gifts. And especially because there was no information how Raldugin really got that back. So it was gifts of money formalized like loans. Put simply, 
Roald Dugan held money given to him by the Russian oligarchs, the people closest to Putin, and those who held some of the most power in post-Soviet Russia. Another source? Also, allegedly, loans from a bank. It's a Cyprus bank, but the majority stake at that time belongs to Russian State Bank. And again, the interest rate was very low and it seems that he never returned any of this money. So this shows us how it basically goes from state institution to Roldugin's pocket. Some of those six companies linked to Roldugin took out loans from the Cyprus-based bank and distributed them to still more companies. All in all, it made for a tangled web of donations, loans and investments, all of which was coordinated by Putin's closest allies. They also racked up their funds, in large part, by buying stocks and making carefully premeditated cancellations. Raldugin would sign two contracts the same day, one to buy stakes and second is cancellation agreement. But cancellation agreement implies a reward for Aldugin. A reward to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Raldugin would send a contract to Mossack Fonseca for the purchase of stocks, and another that would guarantee him up to a quarter of a million dollars if the agreement was not carried out. But because the two contracts were executed at the same time, he could be assured to receive the cancellation payment. Raldugan also made vast sums of money by purchasing stocks of Russian companies and then immediately selling them back for a profit. According to Alessia and her colleagues, these sorts of deals may simply have been a red herring, a way of hiding the true source of other payments. There were different experts in different fields that work us through all the red flags that might be seen in this document. I remember how it was Lithuanian colleague who shared his opinion on the documents that we see and he told us that it looks very much like money laundering because it was Lithuanian bank involved. So, yeah, there were different experts from different countries as well. The billions of dollars moving through this labyrinthine network were used in part to buy Russian real estate. But the offshore companies also held massive stakes in Russian companies, including the country's largest seller of television advertising and its largest producer of trucks. The big takeaway? Putin's best friend and many of their buddies held major investments in some of Russia's biggest companies and were receiving huge profits from them. And they were able to buy those stakes for next to nothing. In previous years, Putin had called for de-offshoreization, essentially for Russian money to come out of hiding. But even though the net worth of the Russian president remains uncertain, investigations like Alessia's make it crystal clear. Putin is surrounded by secret and sometimes stolen wealth. It's customary for a journalist to ask the subject of her story for comment prior to publication. But in Alessia's world, things work a little differently. In Russia, it rarely happens because nobody would speak to a journalist. Nobody answers your phones. Nobody agrees to meet you. It's impossible. But Sergei Roldugin was not your typical kleptocrat. Roldugin, not only secretive oligarch, right? He is a public uh, musician. 
So I checked his time schedule. Alessia wants to confront Roldugan on his home turf, a concert hall. And found few dates where we can go there because it was closer to our publication date. That was very important uh, because in Russia, again, <laughs> it's different from how international journalist works. We don't want to give the main character too much time to answer because he might try to act before you publish anything. Remember, this is a dangerous job Alessia is doing. She can't be certain if her physical well-being is at risk. And the reputational damages are likely to be painful too, once the president's inner circle denounces her work, as they most assuredly will. But those worries will have to wait. Olesia has a concert to attend. It wasn't just me. It was me and Roman Anin, my colleague. It was two of us. It was in conservatory in Moscow. I don't remember what performance was exactly, but it wasn't very <laughs> important for us. Fair enough. There are surely better circumstances under which to enjoy a night out. It was funny because it was Roman who bought the tickets and uh, I don't remember exactly, but I suppose it was Tuesday. Then I spent a lot of time choosing my dress to go there and we went there. We went to conservatory. We were very nervous because it was important to, to be there. And when we showed tickets to the guard, he didn't let us in. And it was a shock. Like, okay, he knows something. Pause for a moment. Imagine being in Alessia's position. You're in a race against time to get a comment from this slippery oligarch, Putin's dear old friend. Had you come sooner, your story would have been pilloried by the government and its cronies before it could ever see the light of day. But miss this chance, and you'll be up against the publication date with no word from the subject himself. As a journalist, it's your job to get all sides of this story, even if some of them are of questionable veracity. Without that, your reputation will be on the line, and you'll be even more vulnerable to attacks by the state. Now you're at the door of the concert hall, where the cellist is about to perform. Your heart is pounding in your chest, and the guard knows something you don't know. Then he told us, but no, it's not today, it's tomorrow. Well, better a day early than a day late. The mix-up took the pressure off Alessia and Roman. When they returned the next night, they were feeling lighter, less nervous, for the most part. Roman bought tickets to the first row, so we were sitting right in front of Raldugin. I was wondering if he would see my face and see how I look at him differently from other people in conservatory. <laughs> It's like I was looking directly at him and he was playing and sometimes he had his eyes closed, like he was very into music, but sometimes he looked at me and <laughs> he knew I looked suspicious, but maybe I'm exaggerating, of course. Would they really politely sit through the whole show before confronting the cellist? Alessia decided it was better to take care of things before the evening ran away with them. It was in two parts. 
after the first part, I told Roman, like, it's time to go. If we will wait till the end of the second part, he will probably just disappear. But this is a good time to try to find him. But find him where? And get to him how? It's not like these two young journalists were brandishing their press passes. And I didn't know if it is at all possible. But yeah, we were lucky. So we could go through a small door to the place where dressing rooms are. The door, to their relief, was open. Alessia and Roman could waltz right in, joining the queue of people wanting to speak with the famed musician. So that's when one person started his conversation with Ralugin with something like, um, Hi, you probably remember me from childhood. I studied with you, but now I'm doing finance. And Raldugin was like, oh, no, finance, I don't know anything about finance. Oh, really, Mr. Raldugin? Alessia and Roman could have called him on his bluff then and there, but Raldugin went further. He answered to that guy that he knows nothing about finance, and even his cello is secondhand. Even his cello is secondhand. Credit to this guy for sticking to the script. We were trying not to show how we happy to hear this fruitful things he accidentally saying. And then we took a moment to say hi, like to attract his attention and to say like, we're journalists, we really want to talk to you. And I don't think we disclosed the topic in advance, but he probably understood because the day before we sent him our questions. And actually we expected him to say like, I don't have time like, go away. But he was very polite. He told us, okay, I'll talk to you. Uh, wait a moment. And he finished conversation with someone else in the line and then walked us into his dressing room. Strangely hospitable behavior for someone who likely already knew he was under scrutiny. Alessia was on alert. I remember I put my dictaphone on record, like, in secret just to have the record to not forget what he was saying. And we were asking questions about all these offshores. And I think somebody was like naturally playing the role of good cop and bad cop. Roman asked general questions, while Alessia grilled Roldugan on the details, calling him out when the facts didn't line up. Conversation probably lost for, I don't know, five to 10 minutes maximum. And then he told us something like, okay, these are very interesting questions. I need some time to gather information. I want to address them properly. So let's talk in a better situation, in better time, call me. And of course we tried to call him, tried to email him, but he never answered after that. Still, it was a victory for the two journalists. They'd got what they came for. And Roald Dugan was even polite to them about it. We were very happy. We did everything, so we enjoyed the music, the second part. Two performances for the price of one. And then we went to the next bar, like the bar next door, to have a good drink to celebrate. Roman told something like, yeah, we need to write down what he answered, not to forget. And then I like took my dictaphone and told like, yeah, I have it recorded. Masterful. Of course. What happened afterwards felt less triumphant. In the concert hall and in the bar, Alessia could celebrate their victory. But she was still living in an oppressive environment, 
for people working to circulate the truth. And the set of truths she'd be publishing would not be pleasing to the president or his friends. A few days after, an uh, official spokesman to president hold a press conference before our publication claiming that our publication would be a lie about President Putin. <laughs> he didn't try to prevent us from publishing, but he tried to discredit our article even before the publication. Alessia and her colleagues published their article, The Secret Caretaker, in April of 2016. Its title came from someone who knew Roldugan well. Putin's trusted friend, the source said, could be described as the president's caretaker, a keeper of his secrets and protector of his fortunes. In the aftermath of the revelations, Alessia never faced direct threats, but a pool of suspicion hung over her newsroom. I remember it was said by someone that there are suspicious cars spending time near Nova Gazeta, where we were working from. So there were some red flags for us. But yeah, I remember it was very important to me to stay in Russia during the investigation and when we published. Because at that time, I thought that's not too dangerous to stay there. So yeah, I wanted to be there. After we published, even Putin himself said that the article is so well written as if it were lawyers who wrote it. Because I think they were looking for something to sue us for or to claim that it's not correct. That was the environment Alessia left behind when she decided to move to Latvia to trade the suspicion and aggression of the Russian authorities for the relative freedoms of life in the European Union. For years, Alessia traveled back and forth from Riga to Moscow. But last year she decided it was time to go home. We were, like with my husband, we were actually arranging our life in Moscow. We rented our flat in our favorite district of Moscow and we already imagined what kind of fabulous life we will be living in Moscow because I miss Moscow very, very much. And uh, yeah, and then I was proclaimed foreign agent. A foreign agent. So unwelcome was Alessia's work on the corruption of Russian politicians and their cronies that her government labelled her an enemy of the state. And that upped the stakes for her in a tangible way. It happened a year ago in August 2021. It just, like your name, just one day appears at the website of Ministry of Justice or of so-called Ministry of Justice. And yeah... That's how I knew that I'm a foreign agent. That was a clear sign of that they know your name. It's like a mark <laughs> that they are looking at you very closely. It's sad, like, but it's only when you really think of how things might be different that you feel that it's sad. Because otherwise it just your life in Latvia, yeah, and like all your relatives lives in different country. But of course, I'm looking at my colleagues in European countries or in US, in the US, who are praised for their work. And only then, yeah, I start to imagine how it might be if political situation would be different, that I might have done the same job and feel safe in my own country. But 
yeah, for me it's not the case. Today, Alessia is still living in Latvia, still investigating dirty money in her home country and around the world. But as time passes, it's harder to envision her giggling with a colleague in a darkened theatre or celebrating their successes over a round of drinks. It's harder for her to fathom finding much to celebrate at all. The more old I get, <laughs> if I can say so, yeah, the more dangerous it seems. And I really understand what it means because when I was young, it was more glamorous and, uh, I don't know, fun. <laughs> but now you really understand what it is. I would say I liked my job a lot, but a lot of changed last months. Like, yeah, sometimes I feel it's all like useless and sometimes I'm, I feel desperate because uh, when I see how people in Russia, in many cases, support what is going on in Ukraine, that just don't go into my mind. <laughs> that is just too terrible. Regardless of where you live, following the trail of Russian cash leads you all over the world. And according to next week's expert, it might even lead you to some of the biggest threats faced by the democratic world. If these countries are going to have any chance of breaking free of this sort of predatory political elite who've colonized them, then at the very least, foreigners need to start helping the good guys instead of helping the bad guys. More on that next week. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next time to learn the secrets of the world's most powerful butler. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs>